Hey everybody, Ryan here, and you are listening to The Poison Lab. Today we have another episode of Toxicologist vs. the Internet, and we welcome on our guest, Dr. Justin Corcoran, medical toxicologist and emergency physician. You probably know the drill by now for these episodes. We will tackle some questions about drug toxicity from the Internet and go through some cases of fatal poisoning, with each of us working through our differentials on what we think the culprit poison was that caused the fatality. If you're just here to listen to the cases, go ahead and skip to minute 36 to hear us work through these cases. For everyone else, keep listening. We'll cover topics today like drugs of the future, opioid metabolism, drug-induced hearing loss, and whether or not you can hide the effects of certain drugs by taking other drugs. There's some great conversation. But before we dive in, a few disclaimers. We will be answering questions on the internet from people who might be trying to use illicit drugs for euphoric effects. While this provides us with a medium to have a lively discussion around pharmacologic and toxicologic concepts, we are in no way encouraging anyone to use illicit substances. In fact, dealing with the toxicities from illicit substance use is a frequent encounter for toxicologists. Anyone taking illicit substances exposes themselves to unregulated doses, potentially overdosing, as well as adulterants and contaminants that can have serious health consequences. If you are having trouble with substance use disorder, call 1-800-662-4357 to get to the SAMHSA National Helpline and get connected to the care that you deserve. Second, this is an educational show, and while we're going to have discussion around the potential health effects of toxins or drugs, this is not medical advice. If you have a question about your health or a potential toxic exposure, reach out to your doctor or call your local poison center, 1-800-222-1222, for free 24-7 access to trained medical experts who can help you get the free medical advice you need. All right, without further ado, let's dive in. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who treat poisoning. I'm your host, Ryan, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, and we have a great episode today, another rendition of Toxicologist vs. the Internet, with our special guest, Dr. Justin Corcoran, MD. Welcome, Dr. Corcoran. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Corcoran completed his Doctor of Medicine at the University of Toledo College of Medicine, went on to do an emergency medicine residency at Mayo Clinic, and completed a two-year toxicology fellowship as part of the Twin Cities Toxicology Fellowship uh, over there in Minnesota. And I will have to disclose here, in honor of my recently transplanted from Minnesota guest, I have a Surly Furious IPA here for our uh, little recording session. And uh, in honor of me being here, I've got a Lakefront Brewery. Oh, excellent choice. For the listeners, that's a local brewery around here. And I think that's probably one of the best tours that I've ever done for a brewery. I'm definitely looking forward to visiting that place once the restrictions are loosened a little. Yes, absolutely. Once the world is vaccinated and ready to roll again, things reopening. Uh, So to get back to our introduction, as you can probably surmise from Dr. Corcoran's pedigree of training. He's a current practicing emergency physician and medical toxicologist. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Corgan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing very well. Uh, I will have to, I have to say here that uh, amongst Dr. Corcoran's many accolades is one that doesn't always get a lot of recognition. He's a fantastic educator and he's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. So he's got lots of free foam, free open access medical education on Twitter. Um, You can follow him at J underscore Corky. Uh, And he is also the co-founder of a toxicology blog called everythingisawesomeosm.com, which I had the uh, joy of perusing last night and found many awesome articles uh, that are, would be great for your standard medical learner or uh, anyone looking to dive more in-depth into some of the interesting physiology and toxicology involved in, in medical toxicology. When, when did that uh, start out? 
everything is awesome. Uh, I think we put up our first post at, um, maybe a little over a year, year and a half ago. Um, it's co-founded by Annie Arns, who's in, uh, one of the toxicologists with the Minnesota Poison Control System. Um, so we had been talking about it a lot when I started fellowship and then took a little bit of time to get off the ground. I think it's pretty awesome. Well, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, excited to have you on the episode. For our listeners, this is broken up into two pieces. The first section is called Toxicologists versus the Internet, where uh, myself and Dr. Corcoran will do our very best to answer some of the many questions on the Internet regarding drugs or substance toxicity. Uh, the Internet dearly needs a toxicologist, as you will find by the questions that we end up answering. And then the second half of the episode or is going to be us trying to guess the toxin that was responsible for a fatal poisoning. And we'll walk through our differentials of why we think it was the toxin that it was. And hopefully it's good learning for people who might find themselves presented with a patient who has such severe toxicity in front of them. But before we dive into this, uh, I always like to ask our guests here, uh, why for you, Dr. Corgan, after you finished your emergency medicine residency, just been in school and training for nine, 12 years, something I've seen, what made you go into toxicology after that? So uh, uh, hopefully this doesn't sound too canned from interviewing a number of times, but uh, there were a couple of things that went into it. I always had an interest in doing academic emergency medicine because I really enjoy educating medical students and educating uh, residents. And so it, um, in general, I just wanted to do a fellowship because of that. And, uh, uh, you know, I've always been very interested in uh, the way uh, chemicals work and the way they interact with the human body. I did uh, my undergraduate degree, um, both uh, uh, did a BS in uh, chemistry with a, a kind of minor in physiology. And so I was always kind of interested in that and uh, felt like I wasn't getting enough of that in day-to-day -day emergency medicine. Um, but toxicology, it turns out, is a really good way to uh, uh, loop that back into your daily practice. Uh, so that combination of wanting to do academics, wanting to do education, and, and interested in the um, chemicals and uh, mechanisms really led me to it. Yeah. No one ever asked you in the ED about the Krebs cycle after all the preparing. No. <laughs> you got it. They should know. They should, yeah. right? That should be every, their number one chief complaint. I have a Krebs cycle problem. <laughs> every time you get that elevated lactate in the, uh, intoxicated patient, you should be bringing it up. <laughs> Just drawing it right on their room. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's a common theme I hear. It's a great way to pair the... Uh, almost not basic science, but chemistry and biochemistry portion of the human body that you don't necessarily get to apply in day-to-day -day clinical practice um, with substances that can alter those things. So that's awesome. So for anyone interested in academic medicine and you really want to start flexing all that Krebs cycle knowledge you have, take it from Dr. Corcoran, Medical Toxicology Fellowship is the way to go. I think at this point, we're ready to jump right in to answering some of these burning internet questions regarding toxicology. Um, would you like to start or would you like me to give you a question? It's up to you. Uh, do you mind if I start? Oh, so please. I found this question that, that uh, was not sort of like a typical, uh, you know, pathophysiologic question, but uh, I found it so interesting that I wanted to bring it up anyway. Yeah. Um, so you can tell me what you think about it. So the question is, what sort of drugs do you think we'll see in 2050? In 2050? Oh, yeah. wow. That is a wonderful question. Well, one thing that I'll be interested to see, they're called biased mu receptor ligands. It's something that actually just got FDA approved. It's the newest opioid, olaceridine. So this came to market as what was called a biased mu receptor opioid uh, ligand, meaning normally when you stimulate the opioid receptor, you get, it's a G-coupled protein receptor and two pathways get activated. And with a normal opioid, you activate 
you know, the G protein dissociates, you get CAMP upregulation, all that stuff. But on an equal and opposite side, you get beta arrestin production. And that beta arrestin pathway is responsible for uh, one, opioid receptor downregulation from chronic use, as well as potentially related to causing the effects of uh, decreased respiration or insensitivity of the respiratory center to elevations of carbon dioxide. So a newer drug that has been looked at are these biased mu receptor ligands, which only stimulate the opioid receptor and infer only the cyclic adenosine monophosphate pathway and not the beta arrestin pathway. So there's a couple of new drugs that are being looked at, including this olaceridin, um, and they're thought to have be less likely to cause adverse effects, less likely to cause tolerance because you're not downregulating your receptors, as well as uh, just generally like less likely to overdose from. So the animal studies with this were really promising um, when they looked at primate studies, but then essentially when they brought it to market, they weren't able to replicate that in humans that there was like less adverse effects. So it's just, it's marketed as a regular opioid. But at that time they thought it was, they, they were bringing it to market as a safer opioid. Although I, I will say, I talked about this drug at an um, opioid symposium a few years ago. And one of the pharmacists who was there who's been practicing for like, you know, 50 years, he said, that sounds exactly like how they marketed oxycodone when it first came out. <laughs> less side effects, doesn't cause tolerance, all that stuff. And I was like, so maybe it's just a pipe dream. But I will be interested to see uh, biased mu receptor ligands and how those come out in the future. Sounds interesting. Yeah. What do you think? So uh, I am highly suspicious that we're going to continue seeing a trend towards uh, more and more ultra potent drugs, um, especially like in the uh, you know drugs of abuse realm. And I think a lot of that's going to have to do with the. It, it, potentially being easier to traffic. So, you know, if you can uh, ship a hundred doses of carfentanil, for example, for one dose of fentanyl, my guess is that trend is not going to reverse itself. I can see that happening for multiple drugs of abuse. Oh yeah. If you can send a gallon of fentanyl and it's the same as, you know, or, you know, a gallon of car fentanyl, and it's the same as bringing, you know, 100 kilos of, of heroin across the border, and it's less detectable. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that, uh, as well as just the ever-expanding amount of research chemicals. Uh, the newer opioids, like isotonidazine, which is being found around in the Midwest, that's basically because of the fentanyl, kind of, they finally started cracking down on fentanyl production. Um at least Chinese regulation has. So now we're seeing some more opioids, uh, just other opioid analogs like isotonidazine starting to pop up in certain places. I also wonder if at some point that trend would, you know, potentially allow for trafficking with drones, which is a <laughs> really concerning thought. Well, first Jeff Bezos has to put the infrastructure in. He's got to have the drone landing pads in everyone's yard from Amazon. Right. But yeah, that is actually a little bit terrifying. Low risk for the trafficker, right? You lose a drone, can't really track you. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, that was way more intellectual and interesting than the question I'm about to ask. I liked it though. So my question, written by user ReeferMan420, is the title of this question was going deaf from snorting question mark and he says okay so not literally deaf but i've been snorting for a while on random drugs because you can pace yourself from snorting you'll easily od by popping which i assume he means oral ingestion so i think he's referring to the fact that you get a more rapid onset of drug effect by snorting so you can titrate perhaps better i'm not sure either way he goes on to say but recently, I'm pretty sure it is bleeping, I'm going to say messing, with my hearing. I have had a deviated septum since I was 12, though. Is that why? <laughs> so, Dr. Corcoran, is it possible that his hearing is being impacted by snorting? What do you think? Ooh, 
So I will preface this with I have no knowledge of the literature behind it, whether snorting versus some other drug delivery method is more <laughs> likely to cause hearing loss. However, so it does kind of make you wonder, like, so people who insufflate drugs certainly are at more risk for developing problems associated with barotrauma. So, you know, things like pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum uh, are things that I think of as being associated with that. And, uh, you know, you think there is a, a direct connection between uh, the um, like upper part of the pharynx and uh, the middle ear, so your eustachian tube. So I would, I guess, wonder if it's possible that he's delivering drug directly into his middle ear, which, uh, you know, depending on which drug it is, especially if it's like a vasoconstricting drug, like cocaine or methamphetamine, I could certainly imagine a way that that could be directly ototoxic if you got it into that location. But that honestly is pure conjecture. Oh, of course. That's what this, that's what this whole podcast is about. Conjecturing. (laughs) But there actually are um, many case reports of cocaine induced vasoconstrictive hearing loss. So I think you're right on point here. It really matters. Well, for one thing, what drugs are you snorting? And just like you said, there can also be physical or mechanical issues from interfering with eustachian tubes from foreign bodies kind of going through this route, uh, which we'll talk about here in just a second. But I brought this one up specifically because we recently, I I can't remember when, but there was some consults recently regarding uh, heroin-induced hearing loss. And actually, one night, I remember there was a patient who had tiny pupils in a wide QRS. And then another patient that had hearing loss from heroin. And I was like, is there like a string of heroin cut with quinine right now? Because I've got like sodium channel blockade on one patient and then hearing loss on another and ended up not being an issue. But it caused me to look into in a, a pretty well-documented but not well-discussed side effect of opioids, which is opioid-induced hearing loss. And now for the record, I got to dive into this before the show. So I definitely am going to sound a lot smarter than I am when I'm talking about opioid-induced hearing loss. Because, but So let's kind of take it from the context of this question from the internet, a guy who's been snorting drugs for many years and now has some hearing loss. You can have hearing loss from two different things. You can have conductive hearing loss, which is preventing sound from getting to the cochlea. So your actual auditory canal, your ear canal is blocked. A common reason for this is cerumen impaction or you know having too much earwax, which prevents sound waves from traveling into the cochlea. And with snorting substances uh, or you know any foreign object, you could potentially get a block of the eustachian tube, which is connected to the nasopharynx, which is where you're potentially introducing foreign bodies when you're encephalating. If you block your eustachian tube, well, you can get fluid buildup from inadequate draining, and that can put pressure on the middle ear, and that can lead to muffled hearing. Um, And then you can have hearing loss from sensory neural hearing loss, and this is where drugs cause hearing loss. This is where sound gets to the ear, but does not conduct appropriately to the brain. Um, And for anyone listening who listened to our episode, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, about cinchinism, Uh, This is the same, this is how quinidine and quinine affect hearing, where they actually interfere with hair cells or other parts um, of the cochlea and prevent actual uh, transduction of signals to the brain. So to answer our original internet user's question, yes, it appears encephalating drugs and specific drugs themselves can cause hearing loss. So I guess it matters what drug he was encephalating. But I want to focus in here on opioid-induced hearing loss because of the consults that I got. Opioid-induced hearing loss, we do not know the mechanism, but it is probably a drug class effect uh, as it's been reported with multiple substances like oxycodone, heroin, and methadone, all which are really different classes of opioids. Um, So it's not been one specific opioid. And they originally thought it was from potentially a hypoxic insult because uh, you say a user overdoses and well, okay, then they have a hypoxic insult, the hair cells die and it doesn't work and, and you have hearing loss. But many patients 
actually present with their primary complaint being deafness and no history of an overdose. So the hypoxic um, hypothesis uh, seems to be unlikely. Uh, there's a really great review of a 20-year review of Poison Center opioid uh, opioid-induced hearing loss reported to Poison Centers, written by uh, Dr. Diane Colello, who's the director of the New Jersey Poison Center. Uh, and she also wrote an amazing blog post about this, which I just stumbled upon literally minutes before the show. And it's called The Sound of Silence. And she does a great dive into, you know, the potential mechanisms of opioid-induced hearing loss, where it comes from, what we've seen at Poison Centers. Um, so if anyone's interested, they should check that out. About 50% tend to recover from it. Some think it's ischemic, so they treat it with things that, like vasodilators, like pentoxifilin. Others uh, have used steroids. There doesn't seem to be any sort of drug that actually helps with it that much. Um, and in general, 50% recover, and the other 50% go on to need cochlear implants, which generally fully fix the problem. So it's probably a direct drug effect on the cochlea. That's what's hypothesized. That is the cause of long-term hearing loss. Of note... When we got the consult about the patient with hearing loss from heroin use, it was um, actually there was no tinnitus in, associated with it, so it likely was not quinine cut heroin because we would have probably seen tinnitus in that scenario. There is occasionally tinnitus reported in opioid induced hearing loss. Okay, that was my rant. Shall we move on to the next one? Do you have another question? I do have another question. Question: Can a light opioid dose contract? dilated pupils from acid. Wow. So I want to put out right now that the majority of my knowledge I'm about to just, anything I'm going to say was taken from a wonderful blog post by the very same guest, Dr. Justin Corcoran, who wrote an awesome blog post about tox pupils. And he inlays the mechanism of how everything occurs, why sympathomimetics tend to cause, you know, uh, pupillary dilation compared to cholinergics, which cause pupillary constriction. Um, so I'm going to do my best using my, my understanding here. Essentially, the pupil is always under either parasympathetic or sympathetic tone. Sympathetic tone leads to muscle contraction, right? When we have alpha adrenergic stimulation that gives us contraction. This is an oversimplification, but the sympathetic tone uh, or alpha adrenergic stimulation will contract smooth muscle and pull the pupil open. That's how I think about it. And then parasympathetic, rest and digest, it's going to have kind of the opposite effect. We actually get acetylcholine-induced constriction of the pupillary sphincter, which causes meiosis. Although that's kind of hard to remember. So sometimes I just remember that, you know, parasympathetic rest and digest, it relaxes the muscles that are pulling the iris open, even though that's not the real mechanism. Uh, and I, and is it, which is interesting. So because when you have a sympathetic overdose, you get wide dilated pupils, but because it's mediated by introduction of alpha adrenergic stimulation, your acetylcholine receptors are still open and able to be stimulated. And if you introduce some kind of acetylcholine stimulus, you can still narrow the pupils as opposed to wide dilated pupils from an anticholinergic. Those are not likely to become smaller because you've blocked the acetylcholine receptor. So that's really interesting. So a sympathetic mydriasis is going to be reactive and able to become smaller, but a parasympathetic mydriasis is unlikely to be reactive because you are blocked all of your uh, inputs to make it smaller. So I thought that was really cool when you outlined that in the blog. Now, opioids have a different effect entirely where what they do is somehow increase parasympathetic input. They, um, they block an inhibitory input onto the Edinger-Westphal nucleus. So the Edinger-Westphal nucleus is a parasympathetic nucleus that like its downstream action is to cause constriction of the pupil. So the higher center inhibitory input would tend to cause dilation of the pupil. So in the setting of a, a sympathetic input, whether that's from like a fight or flight response or your hypoxic or hypercapnic or whatever the case may be, you're going to get an inhibitory input onto that Edinger-Westphal nucleus, which downstream will cause dilation of the eye. And uh, when you block that inhibitory input, 
sort of let the Eddinger Westfall nucleus do what it's designed to do, which is constrict the pupil. Yes. Well, that makes sense. So that that was the all I remember is in the wonderful diagram that you created, there was something called the the EW nucleus. <laughs> that was the Edinger Westfall nucleus. So they turn off the brakes on a parasympathetic input to the eye. Is what opioids do. And it, essentially, which leads to acetylcholine stimulation, which leads to meiosis, just like with cholinergics, right? Okay. And so LSD induced, now here's the question is how does LSD actually cause mydriasis or, or pupil widening? Because the inputs are generally parasympathetic, which would be from acetylcholine or their alpha one adrenergic, which would be sympathetic. I'm gonna assume because a lot of my, um, here, here's my waxing philosophical. A lot of the people I see who are on hallucinogens have a little bit of, you know, maybe diaphoretic, maybe a little tachycardic sometimes. There is at least this, it seems to be a slight sympathetic sort of toxidrome that accompanies it. So I will assume that the mydriasis from LSD is from sympathetic in which as was astutely explained by yourself, uh, your pupils remain reactive. So if LSD is sympathetically mediated, here's a question. Doesn't the sympathetic generally overrule the parasympathetic when they come to, like, I'm usually parasympathetic sitting in my house, but if a bear walked in, like, I think sympathetic would take over, right? So I wonder, I, I really don't know the answer to this. It's a really good question. I haven't been able to find an answer for it either. My hypothesis is that it uh, might constrict the pupil to some extent because uh, you're going to end up in something of a tug of war situation. Right. But, so smaller than they would be with just LSD, but probably not. The other know, thing maybe that's what he's getting at. The other thing that I think probably makes a big difference is whether it's actually LSD. So acid that is marketed as acid a lot of times it's not actually LSD, right? Right. If it's uh, something from, you know, the phenethylamine cathinone kind of make, you would sort of anticipate more direct uh, sympathetic input onto the iris itself. And in that case, you might expect less constriction with an opioid. But again, that's just a guess. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how much LSD these days is actually 2CB or 2C, we know some substituted phenylethylamine. A great reminder that this person should not be trying to take multiple drugs. <laughs> but we also definitely would not uh, suggest using one drug to counteract the effect of another drug. That it's not a fantastic idea. No, it's only going to confuse your treating clinician when you show up. Uh, altered and confused so but yeah that, that is interesting and an interesting thought the armchair pharmacologists always do have very very creative ideas i would say um all right well i think hung jury on that one we'll see if we find any more information maybe if i can find anything else i'll put it in the show notes for you guys uh, about what uh, the effects opioids may have on serotonergic drugs and pupillary response. Toxo here. Spoiler alert. We didn't find any literature on the effects of LSD on opioid-induced meiosis. This would be a really good point to uh, plug uh, the complexity of tox pupils. So uh, we normally think of doing a pupillary exam as being a really intrinsic part of doing a good uh, tox-directed physical exam. And that is very true. If you have a poison patient, please always look at the pupils and get a description of what's going on with them. But it's also important to, to not let it, that uh, override your judgment of what else is going on with the patient because the, the pupils tend to be a lot more complicated than some of the other systems involved, like what are their vital signs and are they sweaty or dry, for example. Absolutely. And once you introduce polypharmacy, it can be a, a real gamble as to what people are going to do. Great point. Um, I got another one here for you. And, and I chose this one primarily 
Well, I'll, I'll show you why. So the, the title of the question is Tramadol, no effect at all, question mark. Uh, and it says, goes on to say, so I fractured my pinky toe and went to the hospital to get an x-ray. The doctor gave me an intramuscular tramadol injection, but it literally did nothing to help me with the pain at all, question mark. Huh. Uh, so actually, this is why I chose the question because I was like, intramuscular tramadol? What is this guy talking about? I, I assumed he, actually, he meant toradol, but I looked it up and in the UK, there actually is intramuscular tramadol and IV tramadol. So that's horrible. I don't know why they use that drug. But anyways, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, so the, the uh, writer goes on to say, after like three hours, I did feel a little relaxed and tired. Uh, maybe a little like a weed high question mark, but it, was, but it wasn't even close. Okay. He also goes on to say, normally my pupils get small uh, from opioids, but in this, they did not. What's going on? So, no effect from tramadol. What a surprise. What a surprise. Here's the problem with tramadol. Tramadol is not really an opioid, right? So we think of it as something that is marketed as this opioid light, potentially safer, potentially less addictive, alternative to other opioids. And the problem is that's not really a property of tramadol. That is a property of its uh, first metabolite, um, odesmethyltramadol. Tramadol itself is uh, very much more of an SNRI than an opioid. And it's only when it's converted to its demethylated metabolite that you get the significant analgesic benefit, which in most people would be sort of fine, except for the fact of the way that it gets there. So tramadol is converted into that metabolite by cytochrome 2D6. Yes, CYP2D6. This is a really important enzyme in opioid metabolism. I always teach all my learners um, that any opioid that is starts with a C gets metabolized to an opioid that starts with an M by CYP2D6. I always remember it's the opioid metabolizer because D stands for Dilaudid. <laughs> but so it, a codeine goes to morphine. Um, you can have uh, hydrocodone gets metabolized to hydromorphone but via CYP2D6. Um, so it's, sometimes it's helpful to remember that because if somebody's say really intolerant to hydromorphone, well, then hydrocodone might not be the best drug for them because hydrocodone will get metabolized via CYP2D6 to hydromorphone. And of course, tramadol also goes down the CYP2D6 pathway. And if you're not super familiar with uh, all of the different cytochromes, 2D6 is particularly problematic in that it has a lot of genetic variability. So some people will metabolize too quickly. Some people will metabolize too slowly. Very approximately, uh, about 80 to 90% are going to metabolize it normally, about 5 to 10% too fast, about 5 to 10% too slow. And that can really affect whether you get any analgesic benefit from it. So if you're a slow metabolizer, you're not going to get that significant analgesic benefit from it, um, you're going to get more of the SNRI from it. And uh, that can do things like dilate <laughs> pupils. It can also be a risk factor for developing serotonin syndrome if you uh, get it with another serotonergic drug. Right. Or seizures. Correct. Tramadol is probably, when I think seizures from opioids, it's up there pretty high. Um, particularly interesting, it, um, if you... Look at the chemical structure of venlafaxine and tramadol. They're very, very similar to each other. It's not a surprise that they act somewhat similarly. So it sounds like this guy who got the intramuscular injection probably was a CYP2D6 poor metabolizer. And that is why he wasn't getting much of an effect from the drug. And that's why he wasn't experiencing meiosis because he didn't have any opioid there inhibiting the inhibitory signals to parasympathetic input. Via the EW nucleus? Is that right? Okay. Correct. Learning stuff. So he basically got an intramuscular venlafaxine injection. <laughs> Not to mention, I don't understand why they would design a drug this way. It gets metabolized via CYP2D6 
in the liver. So if you inject it into the muscle, it actually avoids first pass, and then you're definitely not going to make any of the otosmethyltram at all. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, unless they're trying to like prolong the mechanism of action. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> all right. Did, did you have another question? Those were the two that I found. I think those were great questions. I think, I think four is a good number. We, we hit a good amount of questions. I had a fun one about dextromethorphan and SNRIs. I really just wanted to talk about the fact that <laughs> I don't know why dextromethorphan is the only drug where they assign plateaus related to the dose that you take, <laughs> the first through fourth plateau. But we're not going to dive into that craziness today. Some other day. Some other day. So I think with that, we can move on to our next segment of the show, which is Stump the Toxicologist. Dr. Corcoran and I will go through cases sourced from the American Association of Poison Control Centers annual report, where they report fatalities from poisonings uh, that are reported to U.S. poison centers. Uh, certainly don't want to make light of any of the tragedies that occurred here, but we want to use these as good learning cases for people to understand uh, potentially what toxins they might be dealing with if they're ever confronted with a patient like this. Uh, so we'll go through the case. We won't reveal what the toxin is and allow the other to kind of work through their differential. And with that, so. Should I take notes? Yeah, you can, but I, I can't give you any visual aids because you have to have the same um, abilities as the audience. Sounds good. So case one, a 47-year-old male mistakenly took a bottle of pain medicine instead of his evening medications. He was immediately referred to the emergency department. On physical exam, he was nauseated and confused. They don't provide his vitals or anything much beyond that. In the clinical course, within 15 minutes, he had a seizure and went into pulseless electrical activity arrest. He was intubated, received CPR and intralipid emulsion, and he had ROSC, a return of spontaneous circulation after 40 minutes of cardiac arrest. He coded again in the ICU, but died after 30 minutes of resuscitation efforts. And that's it. That's, this is a kind of a bare bones case. <laughs> Took pain medicine, half a bottle, and then pretty much got confused, seized, and died. Interesting. Do they provide any information of whether this was a, like an over-the-counter it's a prescription. Prescription pain medication. Unless you're in Mexico. So it was a, it was a medicine on his list that they could see was prescribed to him. I mean, uh, not to not to go with the confirmation bias too much, but tramadol would certainly be on that list of things that are on pain medication or associated with seizures. Um, so that would be kind of an early initial thought. I guess another thought, so we can just go through it, you know, you think of uh, big uh, categories of pain medications, opioids, so you really need uh, like a serotonergic opioid in order to have a problem with that. So the big one, they're tramadol. Right. When I think seizures from opioids, I think, you know, tramadol, also meperidine back in the day when uh, we used to give pretty high doses and uh, it would make normaparidine, which was proconvulsant or even morphine, uh, which gets metabolized to M6G or maybe M3G. Uh, one of those is supposedly a neuroexcitatory metabolite. But those two tend to cause seizures by building up in people with poor renal clearance. So this doesn't seem to fit with someone who had a seizure within 15 minutes of, a, of an ingestion. Yeah. Could it be a... Uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Some of those could uh, potentially produce seizures. Textbook one, I believe, is methanamic acid. Is the yeah, one that produces it doesn't even seizures. like exist anymore. So I guess that's a possibility. Tylenol seems pretty unlikely. Uh, uh, okay. I will say you already got it right. <laughs> I was just appreciating hearing the differential. <laughs> You immediately confirmed your bias correctly. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, that, I, it was a tramadol seizure and probably per, perhaps refractory and you know experiencing noxic brain injury after that. The cardiac arrest, who knows, maybe it was severely acidemic afterwards or had you know pre-existing coronary artery disease. 
One other one that, that would be worth thinking about would be aspirin too. So that would be another, you know, potential pain medication that could produce a seizure. I wouldn't necessarily expect it, the clinical course to occur that quickly. Um, but certainly the combination of like early GI symptoms followed by a seizure is really consistent with a salicylate overdose too. Yeah. Other than maybe benzonotate, but that wouldn't really be a pain medication. I was thinking that too. And uh, I was trying to think like, we almost uniformly only give that for people that are coughing, right? So right. you wouldn't typically think of that as a pain medication, but certainly dangerous, dangerous and overdose. Uh, some people do use SNRIs like venlafaxine or duloxetine for neuropathic pain. So I guess depending on how loose we're getting with the term pain medicine, those could, you know, just like tramadol, uh, potentially cause a seizure. And just the speed of, of the seizure here was what I found pretty interesting. And really, if you start looking into tramadol seizures, many, many case reports, and they still don't necessarily know why or which is the, like the active moiety which causes it. I know there's there's even some like speculation that it's one of the isomers of tramadol, like, like the, the uh, dextrolevo enantiomer. But yeah, you're right on. So uh, this is why we always tell people not to do the shotgun method of, of taking your medicines where you put all your nightly medicines into one bottle and take it like and shotgun it back. Um, because half the time you end up choosing a bottle full of one medicine on accident and that can cause a lot of problems. So use a pillbox or just lay them out individually in a safe space away from small hands and pets, but uh, don't just, kick back a whole bottle of your medicine because you're not always sure what it's going to be. All right. You ready for one? I'm going to do my best. Okay. So uh, this is a 65-year-old man who spilled something on his clothing, and he continued about his business. Ten days later, he presented to an emergency department. On physical exam, he was noted to have healing second-degree burns to his abdomen. He was noted to have a creatinine of 4.8 and a BUN of 45. He had a chest x-ray performed that showed diffuse bilateral interstitial opacities. He was briefly admitted to the hospital for those problems and was discharged on hospital day two. Five days after that, he presented to another facility and at that time was noted to be in renal, hepatic, and pulmonary failure. He was admitted to the ICU. Um, his condition continued to worsen. Several days later, he was started on vasopressin. He was ultimately placed on ECMO and CRRT. And over several days, he developed a, a um, diffuse pulmonary hemorrhage picture. ECMO and CRRT were continued, but unfortunately, he died 34 days after the initial exposure. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. All right. So I have a 65-year-old male, spilled something on his clothes. I assume didn't feel anything significant that would like drive him to go to the hospital. Seems like not, although, you know, not specifically noted in the abstract. We don't know, but. Uh, then he shows up how many days after, 10 days after initial exposure Ten days. with the renal failure and then bilateral opacities on x-ray and Correct. second degree burns. And then he's somehow discharged because he must be in great condition after that. And then comes back and <laughs> renal hepatic pulmonary failure gets the whole boat pulmonary hemorrhage. So two things popped in my head. Well, one is phenol because you get, um, uh, phenol in itself is an anesthetic and it can cause large degree painless burns, which would make me kind of jump to this. Over phenol, I don't think of pulmonary disease and like multi-system organ failure as much. I think it more manifests as like seizures, arrhythmia, and death. So because I'm seeing pulmonary hemorrhage, I'm seeing renal injury, I think this is probably a bipyridal uh, quat, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of think for some reason, I think a diquat, but 
I don't, it, it could potentially be Paraguay. And I think that's because of the renal involvement, although they can both have both, I believe. Um, but for some reason, I always think P for palm quad, and I just like something dings in my head about diquat being more renal toxic. I don't yeah. actually know. So that that is my, and especially with pulmonary hemorrhage, it's all consistent with massive exposure. And, and there are case reports of dermal absorption and death from, from the bicoidal. So that's my guess. You're totally right. Is it, um, is it the diquat? So it was actually paraquat. Gosh, okay. I feel like it's tough. You know, we're always taught paraquat goes to the lungs and diquat goes to the kidneys, but it's not. I think uh, they all go everywhere, actually. <laughs> I thought that I thought this case was interesting because uh, you know we're usually taught that uh, paraquat is super toxic if you ingest it, but dermal exposures don't tend to be a big problem, and uh, that is true to the extent that the exposure is to intact skin. So the case reports uh, of uh, um, death with dermal paraquat exposures all have some sort of skin breakdown issue. So for example, like a bad cellulitis, or um, in this case, uh, the um, contact burn caused by the paraquat itself. So several case reports of people spilling it on clothing and not removing that clothing or decontaminating it immediately. Paraquat is a caustic agent, not as Badly as some of the other agents that we deal with, it takes more time to cause skin breakdown. But once it does, it can enter through that broken down barrier and cause all the same toxicity that it would otherwise. That's a great point. So something that should certainly raise your threshold to intervene. There are some quads that are available in the U.S., I believe. Uh, yeah, I had one case that was a um, dermal exposure that uh, um, ultimately ended up doing well. The, yeah. the issue in that case was uh, the patient had spilled it onto his hand and had lacerated the hand that he spilled it onto two or three days previously. So going back to that question of skin breakdown, the question is oh, man. two to three days worth of healing of a laceration <laughs> to prevent systemic absorption of paraquat and uh, thankfully in his case it seemed to be enough man very good nothing like a quad well shall we do another let's go all right so i chose this one because it just scared the living daylights out of me because when we get confronted with these patients i'm just like wow this is a little scary so this is a 79 year old woman who accidentally took six tablets a day for four days of a recently prescribed medicine. So she took six tablets a day of a recently prescribed medicine for four days on accident. So she's clearly not supposed to take six tablets a day. Uh, she became weak and unable to ambulate. When family discovered the error, they brought her to the ED. Past medical history, she has a pacemaker, medications, not really contributory. Let me just summarize. She took six or six tablets a day for four days of her medicine on accident, developed lethargy and confusion, presented to the emergency department. Her lethargy and confusion worsened. Then on day two, she developed uh, skin sloughing, blistering, and bleeding. She was leukopenic. Her white blood cell was 1.3. Hemoglobin was low as well. And the skin sloughing and uh, bleeding from the mouth continued all the way up till day five. She had persistent renal and hepatic failure and then uh, eventually went into comfort cares. And uh, do we know, was this her, this was her medication? That yes, she was this, this was prescribed to her. And I will say the past medical history we have on file is not complete. Okay. Um, well, so anytime I hear this uh, combination of uh, having like um, vomiting, diarrhea, and skin issues, I think some toxin that's targeting rapidly turning over cells. So something that 
is either a chemotherapeutic agent or acts like one. And uh, um, the leukopenia, I would say, is supportive of that. Um, so the two really big ones that always jump to mind immediately are going to be colchicine and methotrexate. As to which specific one this is, I'm going to guess that it's probably methotrexate. Um, colchicine, so think in the back of your head, six tablets of colchicine a day is going to put you, well, if it's a typical 0.6 milligram dose, around 3.6 milligrams a day, which certainly would give you diarrhea, probably would not kill you. <laughs> Methotrexate, on the other hand, has this uh, like unfortunate uh, history of being taken in this kind of overdose where people are supposed to take it once a week, but erroneously take it once a day and get toxic uh, by doing that. So that's my guess here. That would be correct. This is methotrexate toxicity. You're AI right on. So targeting the rapidly dividing cells, we see mucocystitis, we see skin sloughing, diarrhea. She gets leukopenia, um, you know, methotrexate. So what I didn't mention is she was treated with leucovorin, which is... That's the dead giveaway. <laughs> yeah, I know. I couldn't tell you that. But so methotrexate essentially prevents your body from converting folic acid into the active folinic acid which is what your white blood cells need in order to appropriately replicate DNA and, and prosper. So as an antidote, you can give leucovorin, which is folinic acid. That's the active form. Um, this patient got leucovorin right away, but still continued to deteriorate. Her methotrexate level on emission was only 0.5, which is really pretty low, I guess, in comparison to like I don't know when you see, well, obviously when you see people getting high dose methotrexate with chemo, but it's probably not a good indicator of her overall status because it was a chronic congestion. And th that's what's so scary is that she took, you know, okay, she took six tablets a day for four days, but, and at the same time, that's six weeks worth of meds in four days, which is a lot. Um, and great. And so, yeah, another common antimitotic agent, colchicine, presents very similarly. Maybe has, I, I, I don't know if alopecia is a more sensitive indicator for colchicine, but that tends to develop late, anyways. So, I wonder if we would have even seen that in this patient. But right on. And, and we run into this dosing error a lot, which scares me. We get people who, you know, took two days in a row, you know, instead of, and it, just when to refer them in can be really. I, I just get really nervous about these patients because this was not the only case report, even in this year's NPDS fatality reports of this kind of a dosing error causing death. So anyone out there listening, you need to really educate your patients. on uh, this is a once weekly dose, not a once a day dose, because this is all truly a preventable death. If appropriate med education was done <laughs> or, or med supervision was done. Kind of another plug for a, you know, some of these really toxic medications probably are better off if you're only giving a month supply and not a three-month supply. Right. Yep, that is true. Do not give three months worth of bupropion to people who want to harm themselves or have the capacity. No. <laughs> um, okay. You got another one for me? Yeah, let me pull it up. All right. So a 33-year-old female called EMS after ingesting several scoops of something mixed with water. She's got a history of bipolar disorder, anxiety, diabetes, PTSD, hypertension. Um, I can give you her medication list at the end yeah. if you would be interested. Sure. Um, those include amlodipine, metoprolol, doxazosin, baclofen, loracidone, busperone, topiramate, sertraline, and hydroxyzine. In the emergency department, so in the emergency department, she was initially alert and oriented. She was vomiting. Uh, she soon became intermittently somnolent and agitated. 
Her blood pressure was at 151 over 83. Heart rate was 151. Respiratory rate was 18. And her oxygen saturation was 96% on room air. She had uh, um, several labs performed, including a blood gas with a pH of 7.34, a PCO2 of 29, a PO2 of 77, bicarb of 15.6, and a base deficit of 8.6. Her serum sodium was 139, potassium was 1.6, chloride was 107, lactate was 3.6, magnesium was 2.1, her electrocardiogram was reported as a wide complex tachycardia and a repeat electrocardiogram an hour later showed a heart rate of 67, a PR interval of 232, a QRS of 96, and a QTC of 526. She had presented to the emergency department about an hour after the ingestion and rapidly developed intermittent periods of tachyarrhythmias, progressing to wide complex tachycardia she was treated with IV potassium, magnesium, lidocaine, and electrical cardioversion for ventricular tachycardia. She was given 100 milliequivalents of IV sodium bicarbonate and then developed ventricular fibrillation hmm. despite ACLS interventions, including intubation defibrillation, calcium, magnesium, and epinephrine. She died within two hours of emergency department arrival. Sounds like I think what she needed was dialysis. She ate several scoops of something mixed with water. She has a lot of past medical history, a lot of medicines on her past medical history, but basically showed up uh, with a little bit of acidosis going on, uh, metabolic acidosis with a slight lactic elevation and um, in a wide complex tachycardia, which was eventually her demise, which seemed to be spurred by the electrolyte abnormalities she had going on. Most notably, I'll key in on the potassium of 1.9. So when I think of low potassium, I pretty much think of two things, either methylxanthines. So she could have had a uh, ingestion of or, or, you know, beta agonists, all these shifters. I also, I guess I also think of insulin, which can lower your potassium, but she was eating scoops of things. Everybody does have access to caffeine and you can pretty easily eat several scoops of caffeine. I don't think she has access to clenbuterol or anything weird like that. Um, so it certainly seems consistent with caffeine. She was tachycardic, uh, little lactic elevation, but died of an arrhythmia eventually. Um, the other thing I think of is barium, barium-induced hypokalemia. I don't know why she would have a jar of barium. And I don't know that because uh, barium essentially prevents, if I'm recalling correctly, potassium efflux from the cell. So you kind of like ion, you trap it within the cell. Um, you got to be careful with that. But given her tachycardia, I'm actually, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it's caffeine. I'll go with caffeine. Those were both the really great guesses. It was uh, actually, it was barium. It was barium. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, well, who's got a jar of barium? Like, I don't know. This uh, one was barium acetate. Barium um, acetate. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, and that is, that, that fits right with it. Barium, uh, hypokalemia. And you have to be careful about replacing that too, because it's not a true hypokalemia. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, although in her, she clearly needed it. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, I was uh, doing some reading about barium just to refresh myself. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a potassium channel blocker, basically. Um, so the toxicity seems to be mediated both by the hypokalemia, but also by the potassium channel blockade. That makes a lot of sense. So torsades, yeah. well, or at least prolonged repolarization. That sort of brings up the, the question, like, how much potassium do you give? How quickly do you give potassium? 0.5 milliequivalents per kilo per hour, I think, is where we run into trouble with cardiovascular stuff. So more than like 40 milliequivalents in an hour, but 
someone like this, you'd probably try to give them 40 mil equivalents in an hour, probably, and just keep it going. Right. You have to be careful because when the barium wears off, their potassium in their cell is going to come out. <laughs> and so the other question too is, you know, if the problem was entirely mediated by hypokalemia and you replaced the potassium, you would fix the problem, but it's not actually just mediated by hypokalemia. It's also the potassium channel blockade itself. And uh, that the extent to which that can be overcome by, you know, even increasing their potassium to a physiologically normal level is uh, certainly not complete. Yeah. So this patient probably needed to get the barium dialyzed out of their body, mm -hmm. to, which is difficult to do in somebody who's out of a heart rate of 150 and is intermittently arresting. Makes a lot of case report of dialysis with a high potassium uh, dialysate. So mm. uh, seven milliequivalent per liter of potassium uh, dialysate, which seemed in that patient to substantially improve uh, their uh, potassium and they didn't overshoot. Uh, so that seems like a potentially reasonable option. Um, yeah. Oh, that's that's interesting. Using high potassium dialysate, that's a good idea. You might as well just equilibrate their potassium with the dialysate. That's a good idea. Great case. The other thing that, uh, you know, you kind of wonder about is uh, doing like overdrive pacing. Mm -hmm. So a case doesn't really specify whether this was a monomorphic ventricular tachycardia or a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. But my guess was probably polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Right. You know, that's what we typically think of with people that are hypokalemic, bradycardic, and have a prolonged QT interval. Um, so that, I guess, would be another thing that I would do. Yeah, overdrive pacing to reduce the amount of time the heart is in the refractory period and repolarizing and able to go into one of those arrhythmias. It's a good point. And then, uh, you know, shout out for ECMO too, if your facility has access to that. Um, barium tends to be uh, cardiotoxic and uh, um, like a essentially paralytic problem. So people right. die from diaphragmatic paralysis because of muscular weakness. So yeah. you think intubate the patient and uh, put them on ECMO. And uh, if you have access to both of those things, hopefully you can temporize that situation. ECMO might also give you the ability to dialyze through the ECMO circuit. Isn't there a, uh, nope, never mind. I'm thinking of bromine and iodine. I, I was thinking, you know, the, those compounds that you can decontaminate with starch and, and it turns everything blue. That actually does bring up another interesting uh, uh, management consideration, though. So historically, the thought was uh, to do uh, like a gastric lavage with magnesium sulfate because the sulfate uh, basically creates an insoluble salt with barium. So barium sulfate is insoluble and it uh, will not get absorbed any further if you do that. Oh, that's kind of fallen out of favor, but I think it would be another consideration for somebody who showed up early. Yeah, that's a great point. Great case. I have one more, but I think we had a lot of good ones. Mm -hmm. I think we'll we'll wrap up from here. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the medical learning community or with the listeners of the Poison Lab? You know, since you mentioned the Twitter thing and the blog earlier, I just put out a little bit of a plug for the foam tox community. Uh, so there's a, a lot of people, uh, you know, both medical and clinical toxicologists active on Twitter that are posting a lot of these things uh, that I think have a lot of clinical relevance and uh, they can be, you know, pretty good follows for educational purposes. Absolutely. There's a people really spend a lot of time creating very digestible information on there. And I, I appreciate that. I always learn something fun. It's a great place to just engage with other people working in your field too. So it's awesome. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Corcoran, for joining us on the show. We appreciate it. 
I think this is uh, got to dive in, into the depths with some great uh, information and, and answering some interesting questions. So, Thanks a lot for having me. It was really awesome. fun. Bye. Excellent show, old chaps. Thanks, Toxa. That was a pretty great episode. Drugs of the future, opioid metabolism, opioid-induced hearing loss, barium. We covered a lot of great stuff. If you liked what you were listening to, make sure you subscribe to the show. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and really anywhere you listen to podcasts. And take a note from Dr. Corcoran. Follow us on Twitter at Lab Poison and follow me at EM Poison Farm D. We have an Instagram at Talks underscore Talk and a Facebook, The Poison Lab. We'll always post when we have a new show coming on all of those social media outlets. Finally, keep your ears and eyes peeled because we'll be posting the teaser to our next episode soon. If you think you know the toxin that could be responsible for the clinical effects, we're going to want you to write in to ToxTalk1 at gmail.com so you can be part of our next episode. But I think that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you can join us next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now. <laughs>